1: Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Elliot Bazano. For every program, we choose a new and exciting book and chat with the author. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Sarah Talili about her new book, Animals in the Qur'an, published by Cambridge University Press in 2012. In the book, Animals in the Qur'an, Sarah Talili carefully addresses a complex issue. What does the Qur'an say about non-human animals and their relationships to humans? And how have scholars understood what the Qur'an says? Talili begins her study by discussing conceptions of animals in various religions, in addition to Islam, and not just Abrahamic traditions. The remainder of the book focuses on the Qur'an, its presentation of animals, and a range of exegetical literature that treats the topic of animals in the Islamic holy text. Talili also ventures into Arabic literature more broadly. She adroitly demonstrates that classical Muslim scholars did not understand non-human animals as existentially inferior, and notes societal shifts in the modern world with reference to anthropocentrism and privileging human existence. Talili also provides a comprehensive appendix that lists a host of Quranic names for various animals, demonstrating the significance of her topic in addition to the lexical challenge that scholars face. Sarah Talili's articulate prose reads smoothly, moreover, and gives the reader an incentive to explore this fascinating text. The monograph should interest specialists and non-specialists alike, as it provides an accessible window into the rich world of animals in the Qur'an. Thank you again for agreeing to chat with us about your book. Could you start off by telling us a little bit about your academic background and how you got interested in the topic?
0: Sure. Well, first thank you very much for um having me. Uh this actually it it happened it started like my interest in animals started when I was a student. I was in a um, one of my graduate Classes, we were studying political institutions with um, Professor Patricia Crone. And in one of these texts, which was dealing with hospitals, the author said that the priority of treatment of patients has to go in the following order. First, you have to give priority to Muslims then to animals, then to Jews and Christians, and then to other people. And I found that, honestly, quite offending. I thought, how could you uh, prioritize animals over human beings? And um, uh, my professor at the time said, oh, no, no, don't take this as a sign of um, uh, you know, being anti-Jewish uh, or Christian, it's rather a sign of apparently a specific interest that the Islamic tradition has towards animals. So that got me intrigued and it started since then. You know, like after that I prepared an annotated bibliography and I was actually surprised to find that there is a, a huge amount of literature uh, waiting there to be explored about animals and uh, after that I decided to do this for my, my dissertation and that now it has turned into a book
1: uh-huh and at what, what institution did this all take place
0: uh, could you repeat that again
1: at what institution did this all take oh,
0: place? oh yes yes that was at the university of pennsylvania so i, I was still a student toward the end of the um, uh, 90s and that was when we got like we had this class
1: great So one of the things, of course, is your book on one level is quite general, even though it deals with very specific uh, case studies and whatnot. But it strikes me as the kind of thing that is going to interest a lot of people and would probably be a good conversation starter. So I was wondering, have you had any kind of memorable airplane experiences where you're sitting next to someone and they say, you know, what do you do? And then the issue comes up and you sort of find yourself talking to a stranger about your topic?
0: Well, I haven't talked to a stranger yet about my topic. This perhaps has to do more with, the, with my character. I don't talk that much to strangers, but I did have a lot of interesting discussions with um, colleagues and with friends and family. Um, so it is it is actually something that I, um, it, it allowed me to have like a lot of interesting discussions with um, a good number of people.
1: Uh-huh. So- yeah. Who would you say is your target audience for the book?
0: Well, primarily, of course, it's an academic book so it is primarily geared towards um, my colleagues in academia and students especially in the college you know level, university level but I'm hoping as well that it will reach a wider audience I'm I'm glad that you found the book um, a little bit re- readable because um, I, I hope, you know, like I'm not doing this just for academia it has become now a um, you know, like something like this has become like the main goal of my life. I have become an activist, an animal activist, and I hope to make a difference um, through this book and other writings in the well-being of animals, and I hope to um, you know, uh, reach out to both Muslims and non-Muslims. Uh, to Muslims, I would like them to um, uh, in fact, uh, pay closer attention to, t- to the tradition. There is a huge change that happened in the last century in the attitudes of Muslims toward the natural world in general and toward animals in specific, and uh, um Of course, there is a whole lot of um, you know factors there are many factors behind this um, but still, I think one of the main factors is that Muslims are not acquainted well acquainted with the teachings about animals in um, uh, Islamic sources. I would like also the book to um, you know like to reach out to non-muslims because the book in fact taught me to to think quite differently about animals you know like I used to think that animals are just like these dumb creatures you need to be kind to them of course but beyond kindness you don't give them a lot of thought now I you know, like I actually keep wondering when I look at an animal, what is this animal thinking or is this even the right question to ask about him or about her? Is it, you know, like, do I always have to be asking what they are thinking? Is there other another way in the world of relating to other Creatures, or is there a way of relating differently to God and to how how do they relate to God? You know, like the Quran, for example, says that they glorify God and that they pray and make prostration. And obviously, all of this is not done in the ways that we glorify God or, or that we. Uh, worship God but they're still doing it from a Qur'anic standpoint. so I keep wondering all the time how are they doing it and this in itself has been an eye-opening um, experience which I hope to communicate with others whether Muslim or non-Muslim you know like just try to think differently of other beings they are not just these dumb creatures populating the world around us there could be a lot more uh, about them and although we may never know for sure what that you know thing is, but at least it's worth exploring and thinking about.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. you've mentioned that perhaps Muslims and non-Muslims might have different things to think about in terms of looking at the text. So, do, do you have? Do you think that the book affects an American audience in particular, since that's where you're based?
0: Well, uh, yes, I mean, American audience and um, Western audience in general, I do have the Western audience very much in mind because I try to address the questions that are raised in this context in my work in general, if not necessarily in this book. Um, You know, for example, there is a lot of um, debate on anthropocentrism in general you know like and definitely like the Western society is deeply anthropocentric as is probably any other human society at this point and as other societies throughout the history you know like anthropocentrism I think has always characterized our um, like the human experience but it has become more of a you know a feature of of, uh, human thinking in the last few centuries with modernity you know like the, the way we worship the mind with with the way um, everything has to be through rationality we have to think rationally about everything and anything that is does not fit our rational thinking you know like the scientific when i say rational what i mean is like the scientific paradigm in general then you know like we simply um, um, exclude that as if it has no value and uh, i feel that, you know like now i'm finding out more and more that this is in fact this could be problematic so um i do deal with questions that are raised in the in the west and because of this i try to you know i hope that this will like what the language the the issues that i raise i hope that they will be relevant to um, a Western readership in general um, and of course also to Muslims I guess because I do deal with you know Islamic sources and like things that a lot of Muslims will find familiar in in uh, my arguments
1: yeah and I think one of the strengths of the book is that in your introduction you talk about the treatment of animals in different traditions and you look beyond just the so-called Abrahamic traditions and you look at Buddhists and mm-hmm. uh, Jainism and so. Since your particular focus is on Islam, were there any particular surprises you found when you were researching views of animals in other religions?
0: Yes, yes. Uh, you know, um, I was... You know, like brought up, or like I learned to think before starting to work on um, on this book, that um, Indian traditions in general are more compassionate and they value animals more than um, Abrahamic traditions. Um, I was actually surprised that once I started looking deeper into that, I found that the um, the situation is different. Uh, there is probably more sensitivity toward the well-being of non-human animals in um, Indian traditions you know, like um, all the subscription to um, vegetarianism and the Ahimsa principle, you know, like there is this keenness not to hurt animals and um, so this is, yes, I still find this quite um, um, uh, it is there and it is important it is very, very important but I was in fact surprised to um, find out that animals are not as valued in Indian traditions as they are in Abrahamic traditions, you know, like um, like to be an animal in Indian traditions is supposed, you know, is often interpreted as a moral failure because someone is resurrected as an animal for wicked deeds in this life. Like if you, if in the, the present cycle you are not a very righteous person, after you die, depending on how serious your misdeeds are, you are going to be resurrected on a certain category of animal, and there is this whole hierarchy of animals. This is not part of Abrahamic traditions. In in general, Abrahamic traditions, although, um, you know, like they permit um, um, consumption of meat and the use of animals, um, you know, like some of them could be characterized as violent, but they still... Ascribe to non-human animals um, uh, spirituality. They consider them spiritual. Um, yes, they do. Um, you know, like really gave them to a lower status because of their lack of rationality. But still, there is more, I think, um, of a, a positive character in um, like the status. I would say of non-human animals in Abrahamic traditions is uh, is higher than the status of animals in in Indian traditions. So this came as a surprise to me. The other thing is also um you know like i don't I haven't done a lot of work on Indian traditions, so I will this is the limit of what I can say about them but as far as Abrahamic traditions um yes there is um a lot of um Um, you know like there are many like anthropocentric um, attitudes toward non human animals but to a very large extent this is a matter of interpretation you know like the Bible is not in fact as um, anthropocentric as many people seem uh, to think however the interpretations that are there that have been accumulating throughout the ages have presented it like this Um, for example you know like the Bible in the Bible you find that human beings are created on the same day like other animals so this you know it's not like human beings are more important so they deserve a different day Um, they should come later or or, or, uh, uh, earlier than other animals Uh, animals also are created from Dust in the Bible as they are in, uh, in, as human beings are. So there are many themes which seem to stress. The commonality between human beings and other animals in the Bible I feel there are still you know like certain themes which uh, could be interpreted or you know like showing that there is this anthropocentric tendency um, I, I honestly I think the Quran has no um, no sign of that of that anthropocentric um, uh, approach uh, it has of course been read through anthropocentric um, lenses all the time and you know like so like for example the permissibility of eating flesh the flesh of non-human and non-human animals has often been interpreted as um, a sign of human privilege but when you look at it you know other animals like carnivorous animals predatory animals are also flesh eaters and they are considered Muslim so would that make them because they eat more flesh would that make them superior to human beings is this how at the end of the day you you know you decide whether a certain being is more important or less important to god or is there a an ecological balance that god you know has established and we are just part of it as everyone else is you know like whether um, you know like animal predatory animals or other ones so all of these Came as a surprise. These results, I did not see them ahead of time, and they came as a big result. You know, like it was not a surprise that just happened overnight. But in, you know, like the more I open my eyes to certain aspects, um, the more I feel, you know, uh, quite um, um, surprised and, and fascinated, in fact. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting contrast, thinking about the idea of reincarnation and what that says about your spiritual status on the one hand, and then tendencies towards vegetarianism on the other hand. So yeah, it's, it's a lot more complex than I think we can often imagine when we think about these other traditions. And again, I thought it was really refreshing to see you make these comparisons to other traditions that went beyond just Judaism and Christianity, and as these things kind of tend to be married maybe a little bit too closely sometimes without taking a look at the bigger picture. So yeah. in in terms of general approaches you took to your work, what were, what were some of the main research questions that you brought into the study?
0: Well, I, a number of questions, in fact. You know, like I think the most important question is, um, you know, like to rethink um our modern culture in general, to rethink um the value that we place on um science for example and and rationality um you know like we have like we just learn to value the thing that makes us Quite different like because we seem to be the the only rational creature around although there is of course no way we can um, ascertain this a hundred percent yes we do have some uh, indications that after all you know like we make airplanes and phones and all these devices and this all of this could be a sign of um, of intelligence but you know like there are other signs of intelligence out there and I think they can tell us a little bit more about other animals. But in any way, uh, regardless of whether or not other beings around us are, are intelligent, I think we have to learn to value other things as well. Um, intelligence is, just happens to thing that we are good at. And I don't think it is fair to, to just, you know, like to assume that because this is what makes us distinct, then this is what is most important. It's like, you know, someone who is very... Um, physically very strong and will just say, okay, being stronger is means being better because this is how I am. You know, who says so? Is there a logic to this? So this is one of the things that I would like us to reconsider. I hope my readers will reconsider this. Um, we could perhaps, you know, like we are or we are not more intelligent than other beings around us, but I wouldn't even care actually whether we are or not because um, we have to adopt more criteria than this I have also you know like I I happen to be uh, I think I would be like more of an extreme case when it comes to many things you know like a lot of things that we have allowed ourselves to do in um, the modern era including for example biomedical research and other things you know like zoos or um, um, pet keeping all of these institutions I hope that we reconsider them because I learned now to think about other animals as persons as beings that have dignity in them that we need to discuss to respect you know um it's it's not that i mean even if it if i need to find a cure for cancer this does not in my opinion justify uh, experimenting on non-human animals because for me it it's it, there is no difference between actually an animal or a um a human being you know I would still kill an animal that is attacking me probably as I would kill a human being that is attacking me if I need to you know like but in both cases I will not jump on that being from like the first instinct it's not it's just like something that I will do in the last resort if I'm unable to defend myself in any other way so I I believe that both non-human animals and human beings deserve the same level of uh, of respect and um, we have to assign to them. And the dignity that they deserve. Um, so I, I guess among the questions that I would like to bring in or the issues that I would like readers to think about are the value that we seem to place on rationality, on science, on the things you know like will make benefit us. Uh, I hope that we learn to question this at a very very deep level not just you know at the level where we say okay you know like I will just accept um, experimenting on animals if it is you know to find a cure for cancer but not if it is for cosmetics for example I wouldn't accept this in any case anything that I would not do to um, to human beings, I will not do it also to non-human, non-human animals with the exception of meat consumption um, because that is something that other animals do as well to survive. And I think also because there is no way we can be pure vegetarians, you know, like even if we stick to a totally vegetarian diet, we will still be kill- killing animals if we want to eat. So it's just like a different type of animals we will be killing you know animals that we don't see or like the small insects so in that case I think in the case of vegetarianism we need to adopt a different paradigm just because it's out of necessity you know it's we are going to kill anyway um, so it doesn't matter if I'm going to kill anyway, I have to be like, I have to be careful, I shouldn't just kill for the sake of killing. But if I if the only way I am going to survive is by killing certain animals, then I have to adopt the wisest way of doing that. I hope this would make sense to, you know, like to the audience. I know it doesn't make a lot of sense to many of the people that I speak to, but I, you know, like when I have a chance actually to discuss it at um, more depth, I think people start to see at least my, my point and my logic here.
1: Yeah, I think you raise a point is one of these issues in society that people just don't think about very deeply because it's so ingrained to just be this normal thing where we go to the store and we see, the meat packaged or whatever, and it doesn't necessarily register that this came from another animal. We might have this idea psychologically. So, yeah, I think you raised a lot of important points about how we think of other animals as beings, like with divinity and them, like you said, and then how we think of ourselves as humans. And so in this regard, you've mentioned this term anthropocentrism a few times and how it's changed in the last century or so. Can you talk about how the commentators on the Qur'an that you looked at, how they've understood this idea of anthropocentrism, and if there is a comparable term in Arabic that they talk about?
0: Um, I'm not sure there is a comparable term in Arabic. Um, There are ways of expressing these ideas, you know. Uh, They just happen to talk about the human being and God or animals or nature or certain things but you can see like where you they they become more anthropocentric or less so Um, so like you know I don't think they have the same awareness that we have now of the phenomenon but they knew that human beings um, could you know, uh, abuse of other animals based on you know, like their assumed status, and they themselves, in many many cases, in many ways, uh, subscribed or had anthropocentric attitudes. Uh, however, in their case, I think, like from from like like what I could gather from my readings is that there were these two simultaneous tendencies in um, in pre modern Islamic uh, writings. Um, on the one hand there is this conviction that the human being is more important and the reason is because God made him or made her more important he created us in a better shape and he privileged us in so many ways but there is also um another tendency which is at least as important as the anthropocentric one or perhaps even more so which is the theocentric one so you know like when you find uh, Muslims uh, defending the rights of non-human animals it's not because they are necessarily um, animal activists or because they have thought a lot about animals per se it's because they thought a lot about the Quran or thought a lot about certain teachings that are there in um, in Islamic scriptures um what they think is um, um, permissible or not permissible all the time would depend on what God has allowed Muslims to do or not to do um, and they tend actually to be to give um, um, a, a lot like many more rights than um, our modern Western society for example extends to animals Um a lot of things that we still find uh, permissible they will just say no we cannot do them because on the an or the hadith um, do not Allow them um, to give you just like a few examples. For example, you know, like spaying and neutering are ex- accepted in um, in modern Western society. Uh, very few people seem to think that when you accept these phenomena, you are actually interfering in serious ways with the um, quality of the life of, of uh, animals. Uh, spaying and neutering is done usually f- for pets, but also like you'll have a lot of uh, farm animals that are castrated for different reasons. And um, whether we do it to pets or to farm animals, we seem to accept this as something actually that benefits the animal Although I I don't think you know like this makes like when you think of it how could you deprive an animal of his or her sexuality and still feel that you're doing them a favor? Um, so it's it's one of the things that it's not that it was not accepted in Islamic texts, but it was something that was uh, heavily debated, and many jurists um, had very strong positions against it. Um, there was uh, this very clear um, tendency to prioritize the interest of non-human animals. But all of this came from the, you know, like from fear of God, for example, or from um, attempts to subscribe to what god um has dictated on muslims you know it's it's through interpretation of um texts and trying to be good to be good muslims people who obey God well more than um you know like particular awareness of animals per se as you may find for example in Indian traditions you know like in Indian traditions you'll find people who think about the animals first I think it's the other way around in Islamic tradition
1: uh-huh so You talk a little bit about the different debates that scholars have had over the years. And there's a few key terms that you look at, which I think are really important and surprising for a lot of us who are who see these key terms translated in sort of consistent ways. And one of the terms you look at is Khalifa. So, Mm -hmm. Would you be willing to talk a little bit about why that's a problematic term and how scholars have understood it in various ways over the years?
0: Yes, this actually this word has a very interesting uh, history um, the meaning of this word I believe has changed at least twice we have I think enough evidence to to um, to show this uh, the first time was very early on in Islamic history, now the word Khalifa, when you look at dictionaries like the Arabic dictionaries the older ones especially they used to have like these very long um, entries and I believe the one uh, for the root from which um, the the word Khalifa is um, derived has like many pages in many dictionaries um, when you look at all the derivatives of this word you'll find that the the meaning revolves mainly around the ideas of succeeding coming after um, substituting for you know in any case there is something that is certain in the meaning of Khalifa when someone is a khalifa of another one the first party by definition should not be there so when you say that the human being is the khalifa of god as it was you know it became current especially now it means that god is not there anymore so this is something actually like when you look at the um, uh, the actual meaning of the word the human being cannot be a khalifa of God because that will be a a huge blasphemy. This is what Ibn Taymiyyah, in fact, says. He says, you know, like, because the word was used as um, the khalifa, like the phrase khalifa of God was used in medieval, uh, in the pre-modern period. And even Faymiya cautioned around this. He, he used to say, you know, like he, he writes that this is in fact like ascribing um, uh, partners to God. You are, ex- are ascribing human beings as partners to God. And this is like the biggest sin in Islam. This is extremely serious. Um, how did this be, word become, you know, like the phrase khalifat Allah, the supposedly successor of God or the khalifa of God? How did it come about? When the Umayyads, the first dynasty after the four rulers that uh, succeeded Muhammad, uh, so this first dynasty, when they took um, uh, took over, they started using the phrase the khalifa of God. Many scholars believe that what was meant at that time was, you know, like the, the the idea was that the Khalifa that was appointed by God, someone who was appointed, not someone who was to succeed God, because, of course, to them at that time, you could not think of someone to succeed God. It is a blasphemy in Islam. Um, however, gradually, when the phrase became more current, it was used, quite often in, uh, in poetry from that period and uh, you find it in different texts. It seems that after, after a while, the idea of a, success, a successor of God became very, um, you know, like it shocked Muslims. So rather than trying to change the phrase, they changed the meaning. They changed the meaning from the successor of God to the representative, someone who is there on behalf of God. Someone who is ruling in the name of God. So this became the meaning of Khalifa at that time. But this is, most likely, this is a post. Revelation um, development. It's not how you know, like the representative of God is not how the earliest Muslims understood the word Khalifa. It was a later development, and it was it started with the um, with this dynasty, the Umayyad dynasty. Uh, you know, about 150 years later. There is, by the way, you know, like enough uh, scholarly uh, work, uh, like trying to 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 make this point, especially with that Qadi's uh, article on this on this article in any case even after the meaning changed at that time the the title khalifa was something that was only for the caliph for the ruler the you know like the one who is the head of the in islamic state um and that remained the case for a long time still some some scholars found the idea that you know a corrupt ruler could be a representative of god they found it very problematic so some of them said no it cannot apply to the rulers it has to apply only to prophets prophets are the only ones who could be or who can be a representative of god because they are the only people who are righteous enough to you know like to be in a in, in such a position you'll find however every now and then um, some scholars in pre modern times who would consider humanity or at least Muslims as the Khalifa of God as the representative of God and um, these however they were I mean I wouldn't say that they were not in the mainstream tradition they were but some of them were not like the a group of authors called Ikhwan al-Safa um I don't think they would be considered like very much into the in the mainstream or, or as part of the mainstream tradition um another scholar al-Ghazali um, who died in the year 1111 11, uh, he also subscribed to this idea that the human being or Muslims are the representatives of God so he used this word or this phrase khalifa God to apply applied it to Muslims and you know sometimes to humanity however some people have argued that these people in fact um, were very very much influenced by um philosophical schools that are not really part of the Islamic tradition like for example like they were more into Neoplatonism for example uh, they accepted more the idea of hierarchy and their conception of God is not perhaps exactly what someone who belongs hundred percent to the orthodox tradition would uh, find you know or, um, would consider like to be his idea or his conception of God but in any way like these were exceptions at that time and the word Khalifa in most cases applied only to rulers or to prophets the third development or the, the second development actually occurred in the 19th and 20th century when Almost every Muslim scholar um, started using the word Khalifa as um, something, uh, or applied the word Khalifa either to uh, humans in general or uh, to Muslims. So it was something that became um, more prevalent. It's not just like the, um, the ruler that can represent God, it's humanity at large, or at least Muslims that can represent God. Why did this happen? It seems that you know that there are many reasons behind this. First of all, there is this tendency toward democratization. Uh, people started thinking, why should it be just like the the caliph or the ruler who represents God? All of us have the responsibility of representing God. Um, it was also a way of empowering Muslims. Uh, some um, you know, like some of the um, um, jurists or uh, exegetes, thought that Muslims were not. Um, you know, like making use of natural resources as much as the West. And they thought that this was one of the reasons why Muslim societies were not as um, did not have as much progress, you know, like they were behind in terms of industry and a lot of other things. So they wanted to empower them, to encourage them to feel more in charge of natural resources and to go ahead and exploit nature um, to be able to catch up with the rest of, of uh, you know like nations and um, so these are probably among the reasons and there could be other reasons why Muslims starting started using the word Khalifa of God you know like with the idea of representative of God or vice of God someone who rules on earth on behalf of God and um, it, it gained wide currency only in the 19th and especially in the 20th century. And I think with that, we see the, um, um, you know, like the impact. It's like Muslims' attitudes toward nature have changed dramatically. It's like the Muslim, in the Muslim world now, like you'll find problems, you know, there is, no respect anymore for nature so I I, I find it quite interesting actually that at the time when this idea of stewardship or vicegerency or taking charge of nature it corresponded to all the negative attitudes toward nature that we see very clearly now in the Muslim world Um it's, it's actually something that deserves um, more research and it, like there is the results need to be highlighted more so that people can see that how um, um, destructive this idea of Khalifa has been in, in Muslim society and perhaps in fact also there is something here for other traditions as well to take from this because the idea of stewardship is adopted by many people a lot of people Things that you know encourage others to to be the stewards of nature, and I think any time that you start placing human beings on the top of the natural world and giving them these prerogatives, it is an invitation for trouble. I don't I don't trust humans actually with this role, so it's better that we just consider ourselves part of nature, take of it what we um, what we need, and stop there. We don't have any responsibility beyond that.
1: Yeah, that's a really fascinating set of implications for the way this term that I think a lot of people just assume means vicegerency, how it can actually have such a a rich history. And you mentioned some other words uh, that also are a little bit more complicated than meets the eye, some of them having to do with servitude. Would you want to say something about those terms that you discuss?
0: Yes. Yes, these in Arabic there is the uh, term of uh, for example this is usually translated as uh, subjugation there is another synonym if you want tadlil uh, that's also um, uh, it's it's usually um, uh, translated as subjugation and it is mostly in fact discussed in these terms so like it's not just a problem of translation. It's uh, there is um, a prevalent tendency in Islamic texts to take uh, the word subjugation, the word for the Arabic word for subjugation, as um, a sign of humans' distinct status. Uh, so, for example, the Quran very often says that God has supposedly subjugated um, animals not animals actually it doesn't say this about the animals specifically but about other things you know about the sea the wind the heavens the Sun the moon um, the earth a lot of things are supposedly subjugated to human beings and uh, when you read the interpretations um, or the commentaries on on these statements, you'll find very often that um, you know uh, you know people take from this that humans are really important to God, and because of this, he has subjugation he subjugated the entire creation uh, to them. Um, but actually, once you start looking a little bit deeper into this, you find this problematic because these. Uh, The fact, you know, like the Quran says that God has subjugated all these creatures or, you know, supposedly subjugated all these creatures to human beings. But still, the tone is very often very critical of human beings. One thing. The other thing also, when you have these statements, you'll find that the Quran speaks positively about God. You know, like it is God who is very merciful. He is doing this. So, if you start thinking or interpreting this as a sign of humans um, distinction I think there is a problem there it's not it doesn't stand very well like to this interpretation Um when you look however how you know like in some in some cases like for example when you see that the the Quran says God has subjugated the wind to human beings it's very difficult to see that human beings have authority over the wind or that because the wind is subjugated to them, they are more important than the wind. This is not how people usually speak about this. You know, like we don't compare something ourselves to the wind, for example, or to, to the alternation of the day and the night. One of the other things that the Quran says are Supposedly subjugated to human beings, like we never say, I am superior to alter to the alternation of the day or, or and the night. For example, it it's, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So once you start looking into these things, I believe a better translation would be to like adaptation. God has adopted adapted um, all these things for humans. For example, He has adapted the alternation of the day and the night to the needs of humans, like during the the daytime, we have the sunlight, so we can work, we can move around, we can do a lot of things, and then there is time for sleep, and you have the night for that. Um, a lot of things have been adapted to that, and I don't think there is any, um, um, any indication that because these things are adapted to us that this makes us superior to them. You know like I don't think I am superior to the stars but the stars are there helping me for example find my way the Sun you know is like it's because of the Sun that we have life on earth and the exegetes were fi- able to find all make all these connections and derive all these conclusions but sometimes when it is about animals they still find that there is a sign of our superiority I think it is lack of consistency that allows exegetes to reach these conclusions you know like i think if we start interpreting um subjugation as adaptation we have to to stick to this whether the subjugated or the supposedly subjugated creature is the wind or the alternation of the day and the night or a given animal or the sea or anything else um, so this is one of the themes that have often has often been uh, interpreted as a sign of a humans privileged status I don't think it is actually a sign of humans' privileged status it's just like a sign of God's mercy the fact that he adapted uh, you know like the world to humans the other thing also is that uh, Although the Qur'an speaks mostly of the adaptation of the world to humans, this does not mean, in my opinion, that the world or the cosmos or nature has been adapted only for humans. Um, There are many signs in the Qur'an which tell us that things have also been adapted to other creatures. Like, for example, um, the air is adapted for birds so that they can fly in it, um, and other things as well. Still, the Quran speaks of the adaptation of things to human beings more than any other creature. Why? In my opinion, it's because the Quran, from the outset, it says that it is a book for human beings, it is a message to human beings. So it is dealing with things that are relevant or important. To human beings it's, it's telling them about how God is good to them as a way of inviting them to show gratitude and thankfulness to him right so this is in my opinion why the Quran does not it's not you know like a book about nature it says about itself that it is guidance for humankind So this is, in my opinion, this is what explains the fact that the Qur'an speaks mostly of the tashkheer, the adaptation of phenomena and beings to human beings. Um, So there is, in my opinion, there is no uh, implied message of distinction or or that, you know, like something saying that humans are more important to God or more important in general than other beings. The other thing also is that when the Qur'an speaks about this tashkheer, it often highlights that humans um, fail to, to, sh- to thank God for this, for this adaptation, for the fact that he has adapted the world or certain things in the world to them. And in my opinion, this criticism in itself is quite important. You know, like if the Qur'an wanted to um, show humans' distinction, why is it criticizing them in the same context when it is mentioning this dashir?
1: Mm
0: right so you know like the mere fact that the quran is more often very very critical and you'll see this is actually a very striking thing The Qur'an very often speaks about uh, of the adaptation of things to human beings and perhaps not quite as often because sometimes just speaks about god but very often also it highlights that humans fail to reflect on this and they fail to give thanks. So for me, this criticism conflicts with the conclusion that that this theme of subjugation, supposed subjugation, is there to show human distinction.
1: Yeah, it's a fascinating distinction you make, or observation you make too, about how it's not just subjugation between humans and other animals that the Quran discusses, but also things like the stars and the the heavens, which, you know, raises all sorts of questions about sentient beings and uh, minerals and things like this. Uh So so we've talked a bit about exegetes, which are people that comment on the Quran in particular, oftentimes in an exhaustive way, right? But you also talk about other genres of literature in Arabic that you look at. So Uh would you be able to say something about those genres and how, those genres differ from discussions uh, about the Qur'an written by exegetes?
0: Yes. Well, in in my book I have looked mainly at um, uh, commentaries on the Qur'an, so exegetical works. I have looked at, uh, a little bit also at um, works of uh, jurisprudence, legal works and a little bit at uh, works of, you know, like um, theology, what is called in Arabic uh, Kalem, um, to look at, you know, like ethical discussions of um, um, you know, like um, themes pertaining to non-human animals, like for example the issue of whether non-human animals have accountability or not, will they be held accountable or not and so there is a lot of discussion about this, a little bit in uh, exegetical works, but mostly in uh, works of uh, jurisprudence or legal works. So I have looked at these, um, for example, as I said, to explore the theme of non-human animals' accountability, especially in the afterlife, because usually they're not held accountable. they not usually like they're definitely not um, held accountable for deeds that they do in this life but some jurists many jurists say that uh, non-human animals will be resurrected and will be held accountable for the you know like any injustice that they do to one another or to other species um so I, I explore this, but I haven't done a lot of work uh, on these um, on these works for my book. I have, however, planned to do um, more work on them. Actually, I have um, written, for example, one article on um, animals, uh, comparing the attitudes of animals in the different uh, schools of uh, Islamic law, the four Sunni schools of Islamic law and the Shia school of Islamic law, uh, to see like what protections or what, if you want, Rights, uh, although I don't like the term of rights in an animal context, but what protections they extend to non-human animals, and um, also works of theology to uh, theology to see the ethical treatment of non-human animal animals, especially like for themes like anthropocentrism, and um, you know, like what is it that justifies? our uses of other animals, like, you know, like there is, of course, the scriptural justification. God permitted us to do it, but many theologians would elaborate further on this and try to um, account for that permissibility. Why should God who, you know, like, who is in Islam, um, like, uh, considered, like, extremely just, you know, like, the uh, the attribute of justice is one of the most emphasized divine attributes in Islam. So if there is this theme of justice, how would someone who is very just still allow us to kill animals for food, you know? So for these discussions, I usually go to works of uh, theology to, uh, to find, like, answers and how people treated them
1: hmm And so one thing you've talked about is how how we conceive of animals in relationship to human beings, and humans are also a type of animal. But of course, this term animal is very broad, and I've noticed you have a very exhaustive appendix at the end of the book that talks about all the different names that the Qur'an uses for different types of specific and general categories of animals. Yeah. Was Was it challenging to figure out what all of these different terms could mean because some of them aren't always entirely clear, right?
0: Yes. Yes. It is it is challenging, but I, I believe once you start working on the Quran there is this um Certain aspects of the Qur'an are very clear, and other aspects of the Qur'an are ambiguous. The Qur'an itself, of course, speaks about this, and it says that uh, some aspects of it are ambiguous. And I think it is it reflects the ambiguity of life. It's um, like when we walk through life, we don't always see things in black and white. It's not like everything is distinctly uh, crystal clear in in life. So, yes, there is this ambiguity. You know, for example, is uh, this word, jimelad, does it mean... Camel or does it mean rope, right? Um, however, you have these ambiguities. Not when it is. Um, I don't think they they affect or they have um, they change the the Quranic worldview as far as animals are are concerned so for example if it is about mistreatment of non-human animals I don't think you'll find a lot of ambiguity Uh, when it is um, a question of the status of non-human animals for example um, in um, Surah number 6 the verse Um, the most probably important verse pertaining to animals in the Quran, verse 38 when it says that every Animal, every dead, every walking creature um, is—they are, are just nations like you. Um, so, like when it it has something to say about animals themselves, I think the message becomes clear. Um, other than this, yes, it is challenging, but at the same time, I think it is um, quite interesting that you still continue to work your way uh, through these ambiguities and accept them and live with them. I think it's it's fine. Life is like this as well.
1: Yeah. And you've also mentioned that one of the audiences you had in mind for writing the book was college students. And so yes. since you you teach college students, do you, mm-hmm. are you able to incorporate parts of the book or your research on animals in general into your courses? And how do students respond to that?
0: Yes, actually, I have. I have taught. Uh, I am in a literature department, so I'm, at this point, I don't teach many courses on uh, Islam or theology. But I did teach a course on animals in the Quran, and the students responded extremely well uh, to this to this course. Um, in fact, it was fascinating to see how their um, understanding of the word animal changed how you know like they started reconsidering their attitudes to the natural world um, you know like they I hope you know like what I could see in them is that they became a little bit more modest you know like they um, abandoned that idea that they are in charge of the natural natural world uh, in any way in any case we had very interesting discussions it was um, and they opened my Eyes um, to a number of themes in the texts that we read, you know, like, for example, um, some of the modern works um, that um, appear to, to, you know, like highlight um, the deteriorating attitudes of Muslims toward the natural world, yet the author himself somehow would still hold ideas that are not very. Um, beneficial if you want to animals Um so we were able like they became very engaged with the topic and uh, I, I'm hoping actually that some of them at least one of them will continue to work on this topic one of them already wrote her thesis on uh, the word Khalifa and I'm um, I hope that you know like they will this will inspire them perhaps to um, uh, to continue a little bit more with this theme in the future
1: well, that's great. It sounds like an exciting course that students benefited from. So I kind of have a somewhat maybe off-the-wall question. In thinking about life and animals and human beings in the Qur'an, have you re- reflected on yourself or found in your commentaries discussions about life or animals not on Earth, so aliens, for example?
0: Yes, of course. Um, you would be amazed, actually, that the idea of aliens was, um, in, in in some important ways, more developed uh, with earlier exegesis than it is now. Uh, the Quran, for example, speaks about um, you know like uh, animals, if you want. The word deba, which really means crawling creature, um, uh, the, so it says that there are the web or debba animals in the heavens and on earth. Um, so what did this, uh, what, uh, like how did the um, Quranic uh, exegetes or commentators react to this? Of course, like once the Quran says this, they have to account to it. And for them, like the primary explanation is that the word animal then should include human beings and angels and jinn, like the other invisible creatures, but also um, many other creatures that we have no idea about. So they, they keep telling you there must be all these creatures that um, inhabit the heavenly realms that they, we have no idea about. tendency, however, tended to diminish with time because the tradition, I believe, became more and more um, uh, rational and more and more anthropocentric. So in the beginning, in the first century or so, you find these very fantastic ideas, you know, like these creatures with not just thousands, I think billions of heads and tongues and wings and all sorts of things. And the only thing that they are doing all the time is that they are glorifying God and worshiping God and obeying God. Um, with time, you'll find dependency. You know, like becomes less and less. It's we have like angels and we have jinn because these are spoken about in the Quran and in very distinct terms. So Muslims cannot generally deny them, uh, but even these they became a little bit more imaginable we we kind of we don't know exactly how they look like but we have some sort of an idea they are these you know made of air for example it's they're just invisible but they have something that it's very subtle but almost you could almost touch you know this was not the idea i think that you can um, that you discern from the earliest sources um, their idea of aliens or these creatures that um, inhabit the different parts of, of the of the world or the cosmos uh, was i think um, more um, how would you say it, like, um, more rich and more um, interesting in in important ways. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Yeah, and and the other thing also, of course, uh, I mean, the Qur'an speaks about beings, living beings in the heavens, but the Qur'an, the the prophetic tradition, elaborates a lot more on this. And, for example, it says that there isn't uh, um, one single spot in the universe, Except that you will find in it an angel that is either prostrating to God or bowing down to God or you know standing in prayer uh, to God. So uh, yes, from an, I think from um, from these texts, um, Muslims have uh, derived the idea that the world is really like brimful of creatures. Um,
1: and
0: they have you know like sometimes they are just angels, but sometimes they are a lot more diverse than this. It's not just angels. So yeah.
1: Well, thank you so much for this fascinating discussion. I've taken up a bit of your time. And so before we end, could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on next in terms of research?
0: Yes, well at this point I'm actually working on a number of articles I'm now trying to go beyond the Quran to look at other Islamic texts and to explore uh, both uh, themes about animals and um, the natural world um, among the projects for example that I uh, I am working on there is this project that I told you like the article uh, where I compare uh, the attitudes of um, legal schools um, about animals um, I am also exploring another theme which is um, which I find very important. There is this theme of inviolability or hurma in Arabic. Um, all schools of law agree that. Um Animals and the natural world, actually most creatures to, to very very few exceptions, have karma or have inviolability, and uh, this entails different things to different creatures, but all of them have this god given sanctity if you want that uh, you have to respect and I would like to explore this and, and uh, gauge its impact on you know like um, uh, especially the animal welfare but also on the natural world, most importantly, however, I am um, now starting to um, work actually I'm I'm, I'm in the very beginning of uh, my next book which is about animals in Hadith Um, this is I think my next major project because when you look at the Quran the Quran speaks mostly about the status of non-human animals it doesn't speak much about animal welfare To know about all the rules that um, regulate Muslims' uh, relations with other animals, you have to go to the prophetic tradition or the Hadith. Um, So uh, my next book is going to be about animals in Hadith, but also in um, uh, Islamic jurisprudence, because all the legal uh, rulings pertaining to animals were derived, or most of them were derived from uh, from the prophetic tradition. I'm also planning a... um, book on dogs in Islam dogs tend to be a very controversial species in general and um, um I think like Islamic tradition has um a also a complex attitude you know like there is this um, um you know like um, love-hate relationship on the one hand dogs are spiritual they worship God we love them but at the same time they were the main source of rabies and they were quite dangerous so what are the different attitudes and the protections that were extended to dogs so i'm i'm also um, hoping to write a book on this um I have a number of, um, um, I have actually another book about the Khalifa. It's like if I don't find a student to take up this project, I I guess I will have to take it myself because I believe that um, the 10 pages or so that I have in the book are not, do not do justice yet to this topic. I think it needs to be explored at more depth and um, hopefully, you know, like I'm, I'm hoping that the, the results will be disseminated a little bit uh, more widely uh, with the hope of creating an impact, I, I hope, um, you know, on Muslims' attitudes toward the natural world. So these are some of the, um, of the projects that I have in mind for the future.
1: Well, it sounds like an exciting research trajectory. And thanks again for this really fascinating conversation about animals in the Quran.
0: Thank you, Elliot. Thank you very much for inviting me.
1: That was my conversation with Sarah Talili, Assistant Professor of Arabic Language and Literature at the University of Florida, about her wonderful book, Animals in the Quran, published by Cambridge University Press in 2012. Thank you for listening.